We've been trying to understand why it was that over 300 people were executed for their beliefs, most of them burned at the stake in England in the 1550s. Now, the traditional explanation is that it was all the work of the foolish and bigoted Catholic Queen Bloody Mary. But that won't do. Over the last 20 years or so, the history of Mary's reign has been completely rewritten. We now know that England was largely governed in these years by her husband, the Spanish King Philip, together with an extremely able select council, which included England's most experienced councillors. We also now know that what happened in England only mirrored what was happening across Europe, as the religious battle lines of the Reformation stiffened and governments everywhere began taking a tough line to enforce unity. The escalation of religious persecution in England had begun, in fact, before Mary's accession and in the reign of her Protestant half-brother Edward VI. This leaves us with a mystery, since almost all of Philip and Mary's leading councillors had also been councillors during the Protestant regime of Henry VIII, and even in the violently Protestant regime of Edward VI. Can it be true that they simply then switched sides and now signed up to burning their former Protestant friends for their beliefs? Or is there some other explanation? Good to see you at the History Cafe. This is where we come to talk about historical stories everyone knows. We want to try out some new ideas. I'm Penelope Middlebow. And I'm John Rosebank. And we're revisiting stories that have got stuck in our collective memory, but just don't look quite right to us. So get yourself a coffee, pull up a chair, and let's see what happens. Traditional accounts of the persecution of heretics under Philip and Mary have tried to pin the blame for it on Mary alone. Even some more recent accounts have said the same thing. The traditional argument went like this. The persecution was not run by the church, but by the Privy Council. And that is somehow supposed to prove that the Queen Mary was behind the scenes pulling all the strings. We now know that Mary never attended the meetings of the Privy Council while her husband, King Philip of Spain, largely governed through a select group of councillors, much in the way he also ran Spain. So the notion that Mary was somehow running this campaign through the Privy Council is a non-starter. Ah, reply some historians, including surprisingly Eamon Duffy, who was otherwise sympathetic to Mary. In the case of the persecution of heretics, Mary was actually running it all behind the council's back. She was doing it, apparently, in collaboration with her cousin, Cardinal Reginald Poole, whom she made Archbishop of Canterbury in December 1555. Now, it is true that when King Philip left England in August 1555, he instructed Poole to remain in London and to look after his wife, the Queen. Quote, the first duty you assigned to me, Poole reminded him, was to console the Queen during your absence. And apparently they met for a couple of hours every week. But consoling the Queen did not mean that Philip was instructing Poole to govern anything with the Queen, even the Church. In fact, when in January 1558 Philip sent the Count of Ferrier to England to check how things were going, Ferrier reported back complaining that Poole was trying to interfere in government. Ferrier was much more impressed by the members of Philip's select council. At least, he wrote, Poole basically does what Mary and her council tell him to. 
Now, we've hundreds of Poole's letters from these years, and he hardly mentions the campaign against heretics. Look at 1555, for example, when the whole campaign was first getting up and running. Among Poole's papers are some formal licences to the bishops to start the process, including a couple when former bishops were to be tried. Well, he had to issue those. Then there is a reference or two to making sure the parish priests are falling back in line, and a reminder that somebody better go along and preach a sermon when heretics were executed. But, well, that's it. It's quite obvious from his letters that Poole spent his days fussing about everything in the church except the campaign against heretics. He's much more preoccupied with whether priests who'd got married during Henry or Edward's time were now living far enough away from their former wives and children, or whether this or that noble lady could eat meat in Lent, or whether schoolboys fidgeted in services or students stayed to the end of lectures. Philip had got Poole right. The cardinal had no head for government of any kind. In fact, he was a liability. What really preoccupied Poole was the question of the church lands. Now, this was something that had pretty much been sorted out before he'd even arrived in England. In fact, he'd been deliberately kept out of the country for many months until it was sorted out, because he couldn't be trusted to do it himself. Henry VIII had simply stolen all the lands of the church. In all justice, this land ought to have been handed back. But like all privatisations, this one had been done in such a way that it was impossible to unscramble. In the closely interrelated chumocracy that then ran England, almost all this ill-gotten wealth had been handed out for political favours. I can't imagine anything like that happening now, though. Oh, quite impossible. And then it had all been subdivided and sold off for huge profits. By 1554, there were literally tens of thousands of people who now owned or leased bits of former church land, including, of course, all the most powerful men in the kingdom and all the people who ran local government. Canny Philip had quickly realised that it was impossible to make enemies of all these people, let alone the legal confusion that trying to get all the land back would cause. So he had personally negotiated with Rome that the church would simply close the matter and move on. But the one person, however, who turned out to be incapable of moving on was Poole. In his letters, he goes on and on niggling about it. In 1557, and that's three whole years after he'd finally been allowed into the country, he lectures the powerful men at court that they're greedy children, they're the ones with all the land, and that they're clinging on to something that doesn't belong to them. Well, it would be no wonder if Philip and his advisers wanted to keep Poole as far away from government as possible. The king wouldn't even let him go down to his diocese in Canterbury, and you can't help wondering if he just didn't trust him not to make a mess of things if he did. Actually, for most of the time, Poole kept himself out of government. He was apparently offered a place in Philip's select council, but never attended or even mentioned it in his letters. On the 1st of December 1555, King Philip wrote to him from Brussels. The king wanted his advice on who to appoint as England's Lord Chancellor, the head of the legal system. Well, it was an absolutely a key appointment, especially in the middle of a campaign to prosecute heretics. So, what does Poole reply? Well, he tells the king that, quotes, he dare not make a recommendation. Philip, he says, needs, quotes, a man constant in religion who fears God more than men. Now, you have to say that's not the answer of a man interested in using his power as the most senior Catholic in the land to enforce the crackdown on heretics. In fact, it was the answer of a man who had no clue about anything of political importance. 
We saw last time that the 1540s had seen the development of bitter religious divisions across Europe. Now, Poole was known as a Catholic liberal, one of what they called the spirituali, and everyone now looked to him to put up a fight against the Catholic hardliners, the intransigenti. Poole had, therefore, quite understandably been given a leading role at the Catholic Church's crucial Council of Trent, which had been set up to respond to the Protestant Reformation. He'd also been put in charge of a commission to keep an eye on the hotheads in the newly revived Roman Inquisition. But on both occasions, Poole then just walked away. He simply stopped attending meetings and left the uncompromising intransigenti to take control. When the Pope died in 1549 and the cardinals assembled in Rome for their conclave, they very nearly elected Poole by a clear majority in their very first vote. Well, it was so unusual, they actually offered him the job anyway, without any more voting. But Poole turned it down. In 1555, there was another election. In fact, there were two, because the first pope they chose died within a month. Catholic reformers pleaded with Paul this time to campaign for the job. King Philip did the same, and so did Philip's father, Charles V, the enormously powerful King of Spain and Holy Roman Emperor. You see, Europe badly needed a liberal pope who could heal the violent divisions that had spread from the church into the rest of society. They'd already caused open war in Germany and were threatening to spark wars in other places too. But Poole refused even to go to Rome. And on this occasion, the viciously uncompromising intransigenti, former head of the Roman Inquisition, Gian Pietro Caraffa, was elected as Pope Paul IV. And he immediately and predictably cranked up an even harsher attack on heresy and provoked his own war with Philip and the Spanish. So whatever it was that Mary and Paul were talking about in their weekly meetings, there's no evidence at all that they were running their campaign against heretics, or indeed running anything else either. The fact was that Reginald Poole was about the last person in England you would choose to run anything with. That's <laughs> right. But those who still believe that despite everything, Mary was secretly behind the burning of heretics still have one more card to play. Aha, it's their trump card. It is. The burning of the former Archbishop Thomas Cranmer. Now that, they say, was entirely Mary's fault. Queen Mary Tudor was not running the campaign against heretics through her Privy Council. That was clearly working much more closely with her husband, Philip of Spain. Nor was Mary running it behind the scenes with her cousin, the Archbishop of Canterbury, Cardinal Poole. Traditional historians and even many more recent scholars, however, still believe they have clear, conclusive evidence that Mary interfered personally to get heretics burned. They point to the curious and tragic case of the former Protestant Archbishop, Thomas Cranmer. Now, Cranmer had become Henry VIII's Archbishop of Canterbury on the 30th of March, 1533. And that turns out to be very important. Cranmer has stood alongside Henry throughout the entire schism with Rome. He'd remained as Archbishop through the brutally rapid Protestant reforms pushed through under Henry's young son, Edward VI. Talked about them last time. On the 14th of September, 1553, two months after Mary had become Queen, Cranmer was summoned to appear before the council in the Star Chamber and sent to the Tower. 
He was finally put on trial in Oxford in June 1555. Trial didn't take long and Cranmer was found guilty of heresy in early September. But then he remained in prison until March 1556, spending some months under house arrest. Now, this long period before execution wasn't unusual. It wasn't intended as a torment, dragging the agony out, but to try to persuade the prisoner to recant and so save his soul. Well, Cranmer recanted. In fact, he recanted a number of times, each more fulsomely than before. But, and this is the crucial point, the sentence against him wasn't lifted. There was no sign of a pardon. Now, the traditional explanation always given for burning Cranmer, even though he had recanted many times, is that Queen Mary had intervened. Surely, these historians say, it had been Cranmer who'd given Henry his divorce from Mary's mother, Catherine of Aragon. Mary, we're told, couldn't forgive him. And it was, according, for example, to the historian Eamon Duffy, the greatest mistake of her reign. Ah, so we are supposed to believe that Mary was, after everything we've discovered, just a stupid bigoted woman after all. But this is the story that John Fox tells us, the Elizabethan Protestant writer on whose enormous book, as we've seen, traditional accounts of Bloody Mary heavily depend. And this is a clear warning sign because Fox is a deeply unreliable witness. As we've seen, he had his own personal reasons for pinning as much of the blame as he could personally on Mary for the persecution of these years. As far as Fox was concerned, it had to be Mary's fault. But you see, it turns out there's not a single scrap of believable evidence for the story that Mary intervened to make sure Cranmer burned. And if there's an absolutely basic flaw in the idea, there's a very simple reason that Cranmer was burned that has nothing whatever to do with Mary. In fact, the evidence we now have suggests that hers was one of the voices calling for Cranmer to be spared. You see, Cranmer's case was unique in England. He'd been consecrated Archbishop of Canterbury. As we saw on the 30th of March 1533. And critically, that was before Henry had declared himself head of the English Church. Cranmer had therefore been appointed to his archbishop's position by the Pope at the time, Pope Clement VII. Cranmer had, at his consecration, sworn loyalty to the papacy in the chapter house of St Stephen's College in Westminster, and then Cranmer had twice reaffirmed his oath in the college chapel. Of course, Cranmer had already known perfectly well that within months he'd be leading the English church out of allegiance to the Pope and out of communion with Rome. It was this piece of duplicity that 22 years later returned to haunt him. Because Cranmer had been appointed personally by the Pope, under the church's canon law, he could only be tried by the Pope. And that in turn meant that he was the one and only person in England who was ever tried by the Roman Inquisition, which had been re-established, as we've seen, in 1542. Now, however confused historians may be on this point, Cranmer himself was quite clear. The historian Dermot McCulloch is one of the few historians who's got this bit of the story right. In his immense biography of Cranmer, McCulloch points out that Cranmer remained in prison until he was called to trial by Rome. An English representative of the Roman Inquisition was then appointed to hear his case in England. He was called James Brooks, Bishop of Gloucester. It's the only time that Brooks appears in the whole story. Well, of course, because the case was unique. When Cranmer was brought into the first hearing of his trial at the University Church in Oxford, he politely acknowledged the three lawyers who'd been sent along by the government. But he pointedly ignored the Roman Inquisition's man, Bishop Brooks. 
Uh, Cranmer could not have made his position clearer. He was still Henry VIII's archbishop. He recognised the monarch's right to rule the church, but not the Pope's. For many months after the trial, Cranmer kept up the same game. He appealed to Philip and Mary for their pardon, but never to the Pope. But Cranmer knew perfectly well that he hadn't been judged in a royal court and that the English monarchs had no power to pardon him. So these appeals of his to Philip and Mary were nothing but a political gesture and in no way a sincere attempt to reconcile himself with the church. Well, meanwhile, the hearing in Oxford hadn't been empowered to come to a verdict. It had simply reported the case back to Rome for judgment by the Pope. Now, according to the usual Inquisition procedure, Cranmer had been given 80 days to appear in Rome and defend himself. Whether he made any request to go, we don't know. But given his appeals for royal pardons and not papal pardons, it seems very unlikely. So far as anyone has discovered, he didn't even bother to write to Rome. Cranmer, after all, still refused to recognise the Pope's authority. And therefore, on the 7th of December 1555, just over 80 days after the end of the trial, he was formally removed from his position as Archbishop by Pope Paul IV, and four days later he was handed over to the English secular authorities to execute. He was, as the contemporary term chillingly puts it, relaxed to the secular arm. I hate that. But that wasn't the end of the story. The case of Thomas Cranmer has always been quoted as proof that Queen Mary interfered in the process of trying heretics. She refused to give Cranmer a pardon, however sorry he was. But this is just the story told by the Elizabethan Protestant writer John Fox, and it's nonsense. Because Cranmer had been made Archbishop back in March 1533 by the Pope, he was the one and only man in England whose case would be decided by the Pope himself. Mary couldn't have pardoned Cranmer, had she wanted to. And the evidence we now have is that she did indeed want to. In the months after the Pope had given his verdict, Cranmer seems to have reflected. Well, Mary's cousin, the new Archbishop Reginald Poole, wrote him two ill-judged and aggressive letters. Typical Poole. <laughs> Typical Poole, as we've seen, he never had an ounce of tact. But the deeply learned Spanish professor of theology in Oxford, Juan de Biagafia, spent many hours in conversation with Cranmer. On the 26th of February, 1556, two days after a date had finally been set for Cranmer's burning, the Oxford professor was finally able to bring him to a full recantation. It included acceptance of the Catholic Mass and of the Pope. On the 18th of March, Cranmer wrote an even more abject recantation. This time, he rejected Henry VIII's divorce and implored the forgiveness of the Pope and of Philip and Mary. Early on the 21st of March, the date set for his execution, he signed 14 copies of this document and requested, in the manner of a Catholic, that prayers be said for him after his death. Now, the historian Dermot McCulloch writes that, according to canon law, Cranmer's life should now have been spared. McCulloch therefore goes back to Fox's old story that only Mary's insistence took him to the stake. But since McCulloch wrote, historian Jane Wickersham's study of the Roman Inquisition has shown that inquisitors had considerable latitude over the punishment they gave. The ignorant were shown more mercy than the educated. Those who practised their heresy were given much heavier sentences than those who'd only spoken about them. 
the accused were always given a period of time, usually 30 or 40 days, to recant before judgment was given. Those who did, and did so willingly, received lighter punishment. Cranmer, a highly educated man, had been given 80 days, but had made no use of them. His recantations had only come after the end of the 80 days and after the Pope had given his verdict. In his case, his heretical practice as Archbishop for 20 years had been so public that only a public recantation before the Pope gave his verdict would have saved him, according to the canon law of the Roman Inquisition. For a comparison, studies of the Spanish Inquisition show that recantation after judgment had been given would not spare a heretic from the flames. Great efforts were always made to encourage you to recant because it would save your eternal soul, which is why Professor Biagathia had spent so many hours trying to persuade Cramer to change his mind. If you recanted after judgment, you would probably on the day be garroted at the stake before the flames reached you. So you died quickly. You weren't burned alive. But burnt you almost certainly would be. Indeed, the Spanish regarded a recantation that had only been given through fear as barely a recantation at all. And Cranmer's was only given, you recall, once a date had been set for his execution. But the key point of all this is that the only person who could have saved Cranmer would have been the Pope. And in 1556, that was Paul IV. Now, he was the former head of the Roman Inquisition, a hardline Catholic intransigente the man more than anyone responsible for the escalation of burnings across Europe. The man, you remember, who declared he would burn his own mother if she stepped out of line. Well, Paul IV was never going to spare an apostate archbishop. We also now have the evidence from the trial of a Spanish friar. Now, he was charged with heresy in Rome in the 1560s, but he'd been at the English court during Cranmer's long ordeal. Witnesses at the trial of the Spanish friar stated that the English had dragged their feet over executing Cranmer and that he, the Spanish friar, had, quote, insisted and worked hard for the sentence to be carried out. This reluctance to burn Cranmer was probably shared by Mary. In fact, among the papers of this trial in Rome is a statement by a Spanish chaplain, Cristobal Becerra. He confirmed that he'd himself witnessed Mary's hesitation to burn Cranmer. In fact, he'd heard the friar, the Spanish friar, preach a sermon at Greenwich, denouncing Cranmer and calling for Mary and her counsellors to get on and fulfil the Pope's sentence. Suddenly, the old story that so-called Bloody Mary was driving the burning of heretics along collapses completely. We have evidence that she even tried to prevent the burning of the man who'd divorced her own mother from Henry VIII and had led the English church for two decades away from Rome. Far from a bloody bigot, Mary emerges as a moderate, humanist and conspicuously humane Catholic. Well, it brings us back to our original conclusion. The Catholic campaign to burn heretics must have been initiated in some way primarily by Philip's Consejo Cogido, his select council. They were able and experienced men, but they'd almost all been living for years as practising Protestants. Some, in fact, have been central to Henry's break with Rome or the rapid and brutal enforcement of Protestantism under Edward VI. just doesn't make any sense at all. Gonzalo Molasco is the first historian properly to study Philip's select council. His work will soon appear in print. 
He's very generously discussed these podcasts with us and goes along with most of what we've been arguing. But he tells us that he can find no evidence that this select council discussed much of Philip and Mary's religious policy. He also points out that Philip's Consejo Cogido in Spain left religious affairs to the bishops and suggests that the English one did the same. Well, Gonzalo Badasco knows far more about all of this than we ever shall. But the mystery just doesn't seem to go away. You see, the big problem is that although there may be little written evidence that the select council were involved, there's very little written evidence that anyone else was either. Yeah, that's the problem. As we've seen, there's hardly anything even in Poole's letters, and he's the one person you might definitely have expected to refer to it. All we have from Mary herself is one paragraph in a much later copy, apparently written to her councillors sometime in the early autumn of 1554. Mary writes that, quotes, Touching punishment of heretics, methinketh it ought to be done without rashness. The important thing, the Queen says, was, quotes, that the people might well perceive them not to be condemned without just occasion. Other than that, all Mary suggests is that in London especially, some of the councillors had better go along if there are any burnings, which does make you think that she didn't expect there to be many. And while she wants various other church matters referred to Poole, this is not one of them. Well, that doesn't get us very far. It's all generalisations. doesn't get us very far towards finding out who actually came up with the campaign and decided exactly how to do it. As for the wider Privy Council, not the Select Council, but the wider Privy Council, well, I counted, what, 15, 16 references to heretics in its papers over four years. And the point is, they're all about routine details, where oh, this all that will happen, sometimes telling officials to get on with it. A couple of notes about particularly notorious cases even mention Philip and Mary. But the point is, this is just the council going about its ordinary, boring, everyday administrative business of running England. They wrote exactly the same kinds of letters, far more of them, in fact, about pirates <laughs> or people forging coins. They're just keeping an eye on the campaign that's already up and running, one among many, many others. So just perhaps we can't read all that much into the fact that the Select Council doesn't mention the campaign against heretics in its letters to Philip, because not apparently does anybody else. The thing was originally conceived and organised in late 1554 and early 1555, while King Philip had still been in England and was attending his Select Council twice a week. Whoever set it up apparently left no record in the surviving documents. In fact, the only consistent evidence that anyone from court was intimately involved in the campaign against heretics concerns that Spanish friar, the man who, as we have seen, pushed for Cranmer's sentence to be carried out. Well, that sounds much more promising. In fact, Belasco himself also agrees that this man was involved in some way. Well, who was this Spanish friar? His name was Bartolomé Carranza, and until recently he'd been completely written out of English history. it seems hard to believe that Philip's select council was running the campaign to burn heretics, then maybe this policy was being driven along by one of Philip's most trusted courtiers, the Spanish friar Bartolomé Carranza. Carranza was a friar of the Dominican order, and after the first few months in England, he wore its distinctive black habit. Like Poole, he was from the moderate humanist spirituali side of the Catholic Church. He'd come over from Spain to prepare the way for Philip in the summer of 1554. 
He was experienced and astute and quickly got involved in the important practicalities of getting the English Catholic Church up and running again. When King Philip left for the Netherlands in August 1555, he took most of his 4,000 strong Spanish entourage with him. But he left Carantha as his eyes and ears in London. When in November that year, Poole called a synod of English bishops, it was Carantha who went along every day and drew up many of the significant policies and wrote its most important document, a new catechism for England. In December 1555, Philip was looking for a new Chancellor for England, as we've said. Cardinal Poole, as we mentioned, was unable or unwilling to come up with any names. It was Carantha who rolled up his sleeves, took a cool, hard look around the English court and recommended Philip appoint the Archbishop of York, Nicholas Heath, who was a moderate Catholic like himself. Philip appointed Heath. Even after Carantha left England for the Netherlands in 1557, he went on writing streams of letters to the English. He was clearly still wrapped up in English affairs. Carantha's enormous contribution to the English church and state was, of course, completely ignored by traditional English Protestant historians. Oh, whatever next, a Spaniard helping to run England. <laughs> Impossible. It wasn't until a Basque priest, Jose Ignacio Tejetia Idigra, you have to excuse my Basque, <laughs> began to analyse Carantha's letters and papers in the 1960s and 1970s that the man ever became known in England at all, and even longer before he was taken seriously. Now, the most extraordinary series of documents is the evidence we've already briefly glimpsed. It comes from Carantha's trial in Rome. After leaving England, he became Archbishop of Toledo. I think that's the most senior bishop in Spain. But his background as a moderate Catholic reformer now caught up with him, and the hardliner inquisitor, Pope Paul IV, the man who'd burnt Cranmer, had Carantha arrested for heresy. Carantha spent nearly all of the remaining 17 years of his life under arrest. He was eventually acquitted, but fortunately for us, the papers from his trial examine in some detail his work in England. They show how deeply he'd been involved in the work of re-establishing English Catholicism and of suppressing heresy there. And in case we revert to the clichéd stereotype of darkly persecuting over-pious Spaniards, the historian Henry Cayman many years ago demonstrated a strong thread of reasoned toleration running through the Spanish church in the 16th century. On more than one critical occasion, the Spanish clergy argued that both secular and religious authorities should leave the Protestants alone, or at the very least give them a proper hearing. They did not believe that repression was much use in the long run. It's therefore significant that it turns out to have been Carantha who'd sat hearing heresy cases day after day in England with Edmund Bonner, the Bishop of London. Bonner, as we shall see, had to deal with more cases than anyone else in England and in practice worked long and hard to find compromises and to save the accused from the stake. For two decades before he'd come to England, Carantha, a moderate, reforming theologian, had acted as an advisor to the Spanish Inquisition back in Valladolid and his experience of how they did things was clearly listened to in England. But Carantha's wasn't the only Spanish voice speaking in Philip's ear. In 1553, a hardline intransigente Spanish cardinal, Juan Alvarez, had been appointed Inquisitor of Rome. In a really remarkable piece of art history detective work, Anne Dillon has suggested that, during the early months of 1555, Alvarez was putting intense pressure on Philip to crack down on the English heretics. 
The details of Dylan's case aren't really important to us here. But you should go and check them out because it even involves frescoes in the Pope's private chapel and their creator, Michelangelo. It's a great story and we'll put a link on our Read More page. Anyway, Dylan points out that although Albareth was in Rome, he had plenty of powerful strings he could pull. After all, his nephew, the Duke of Alba, a notoriously tough soldier, was Mayor Domo Mayor, the head of Philip's household in England. In the late 1560s, Alba would unleash a notoriously brutal persecution of Protestant heretics in the Spanish Netherlands. Well, Albareth and Alba would have been uncompromising influences on Philip in 1555. So, the burning of heretics under so-called Bloody Mary was not her personal policy, product of her bigotry, as traditional English historians have always claimed. It had much more to do with European events, and in particular with the Spanish at Philip's court. However, this Spanish influence still does not entirely solve the mystery. The reason is that when you look at the details, you can straight away see that the English campaign against heretics was significantly different from the Spanish or indeed from any of the other European campaigns. The English persecution of heretics was, well, it was very distinctively English. We've discounted the traditional story, derived from the Protestant Elizabethan John Fox, that Mary herself directly ran the campaign of suppressing heresy behind the council's back, with or without her cousin Cardinal Poole. King Philip's Spanish advisers, and especially the Dominican friar Bartolomé Carantha, certainly seem to have had important influence. But when we look at the way the campaign was set up, it becomes clear that it was originally designed by the English. Well, why do we say it was designed by the English? Well, you just have to look at its legal basis. Historians still go on repeating the traditional old canard, the ridiculousness, that the campaign against heretics could not begin until England's medieval heresy laws had been re-enacted. But this is plainly wrong. The English heresy laws, yes, had been repealed in 1547. But as we saw in our last discussion, Edward VI governments had then simply gone on burning heretics using English common law. It clearly shows that Philip and Mary had no need at all to bring back the medieval laws if they wanted to start a campaign against heresy. On the other hand, it is still true that although a number of people had been arrested as heretics in the first months of Mary's reign, none were sent to the stake until after the medieval statutes had been passed into law again. So we have to ask why these medieval heresy laws mattered so much. Well, the clue lies in work done by the legal historian Philip Cavill and hardly noticed by other historians of the period. What Cavill shows is that the medieval heresy statutes were mainly concerned not with religious issues, but with property. What they set out was exactly which parts of the condemned heretic's property would be forfeited to the state and under what conditions. They were in fact very restrictive to such an extent that it takes hours and hours to go through the legal detail of it all. But what matters is that until the accused had been convicted and executed, nobody could touch their property. And once they were dead, there would then have to be a lengthy inquiry to establish exactly what was due and to whom. Only what was left 
after the debtors and relations had taken their share, finally went to the state. And this is important. The church was not allowed to profit a single penny or acre. Now, this was completely different from the Spanish Inquisition, as literally thousands of people at the court of Philip and Mary were perfectly well aware. The Spanish Inquisition was actually funded by seizing heretics' property. Bit different. It was taken, in fact, at the very moment of arrest. Now, the English councillors apparently decided that this would not be appropriate in England and Wales. It very much looks as if this was part of the delicate negotiations around the church lands that Henry VIII had stolen and redistributed to his cronies. So you see, bringing back the medieval heresy laws with all their careful control over property would avoid any suspicion, any appearance at all, that the campaign against heresy could in any way be used to get that land back for the church. That possibility had apparently been rumoured and gossiped about at court, or at least so it was reported by Philip's father, Charles V's ambassador, in May 1554. There had, in fact, in the course of 1554, been something of a tussle about this between the two men who would be the most influential figures in Philip's select council. The Chancellor, Bishop Stephen Gardner, who was a religious conservative, had been in a hurry to push on with restoring the old heresy laws. But William Paget, perhaps the most Protestant individual in this inner circle, had insisted that the church land issue had to be settled first. Paget, after all, was sitting on plenty of former church lands. Mm-hmm. Uh, so were most of the other councillors. Paget had won. What all this seems to confirm is that the legal realities of the heresy campaign, as they emerged at the start of 1555, had not been worked out by Philip, or by the Duke of Alba, or by Carantha, any more than by Mary, and certainly not by Poole. Who, after all, wanted to get the church lands back. They had been worked out by Gardner and Paget, and perhaps, therefore, by the other experienced old hands who sat with them in Philip's select council. So we're right back with that difficult question. It's true, as we've seen, that across Europe, governments were clamping down on religious dissidents. And across Europe, the principle was becoming established that the monarch could and should decide a nation's religion. But Philip and Mary's councillors put off burning heretics until the land question had been resolved. And then they committed to it, despite the rather Protestant background of most of the leading councillors. Just cynical politicians, or afraid of Philip, or pushed into it by the Spanish. Well, however much these considerations may have come into it, we believe they also had good reasons of their own for launching a campaign against heresy in early 1555, starting with Mary's pregnancy. As we shall see next time at the History Café. There are 70 evergreen podcasts now at the History Cafe and reading lists for every one of them. You can find them on our website, historycafe.org, and you can also sign up for a weekly newsletter. We're also on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and many other platforms. Just look out for History Cafe Podcasts with John and Penelope. And beware of imitations. Follow our regular blog at History Cafe Pod and spread the word. Spread the word.